Hello, dear internet using human. This is Daniel, host of Emerge. A little bit of uh, housekeeping ahead of today's episode. Today's episode is with Jordan Greenhall, um, who is currently serving as the CEO of a company called Neurohacker, but has a very rich and diverse background. Um, fascinating human being. Uh, and today we dive into Jordan's model of human sovereignty. And the warning, the housekeeping is, if you haven't exposed yourself to his model on a general level, then I don't think this episode will be very worth your time. So if you have not yet exposed yourself to Jordan's model of sovereignty, I would encourage you to press pause on this podcast and check out the, the show notes, the podcast description, where I've linked to a couple different pieces where you can uh, read more or listen more about what Jordan's model of sovereignty is. Um, if you don't do that, I can't guarantee you will understand or get any value out of what is to come. In any case, um, really a pleasure to record this episode with Jordan um, for uh, many reasons. And some, some of those reasons you'll hear on an upcoming sense-making commentary track should be released in the next day or so. Um, but I, I really hope you enjoy uh, this newest episode of Emerge with Jordan Greenhall. Please enjoy. I'm curious, though, about this fractal piece. Like, is that actually how you think about it? Like, that the, this definition of sovereignty applies not just to the individual, but to groups of people as well? Yes, that is correct. It is a, it's a, uh, uh-huh. an abstraction uh-huh. layer that isn't actually directly associated with individual human beings. It's associated with um, complex adaptive systems that have choice. And so Interesting. Any, anything that has that characteristic, this concept of sovereignty immediately applies. Okay. Okay. That that's that makes sense. And and so have you worked with it much on the on levels other than the human being? Uh, yes, absolutely. In fact, most of my work right now is working with it at the level of small groups, and then endeavoring to mm. figure out how you could then mesh small groups into larger groups. So, say groups of twelve and less. How do you achieve sovereignty at that level? Um, and I should uh-huh. should mention that it seems plausible that, that on the one hand. We kind of know like the, the concept of group flow um, or just mm-hmm. the, the simple notion of Dunbar level two tells us that, mm-hmm. that there's good reason to believe that we can actually achieve something which should be considered a sovereign capacity at that level. And then, mm-hmm. frankly, the real trick, like the, the, the central challenge is figuring out how to mesh groups of that size into larger levels, say at the level of, say, 12 by 12. 144 mm. just for purposes of uh, fun math, um, and then larger and larger. Um, and this is, I think, mm-hmm. is the key in two directions. One is recognizing that uh, each each node or each layer is itself has the same characteristics that define sovereignty, the, the three orthonormal characteristics, mm-hmm. uh, but mm-hmm. that also 
the right way to get up to larger levels of scale, like say millions of people or tens of millions of people, mm -hmm. requires actual layers. You can't do it in one step. You don't go from individuals to societies in a single step. You don't go from one person to a corporation of 150,000 people in a single step. To do it right, you actually mm -hmm. have to have these these fractal layers that have the right levels of granularity and the right kind of feedback loops at, at each level to maintain mm -hmm. the integrity of each level um, and the uh, upward the, the ability for the symmetry between downward causation and upward causation to actually maintain. And, and is it your sense that that those those layers are uh, kind of scaffolded around the Dunbar number? Is that why you brought well, it up, or, that or is, how, how do how yeah, do those layers? Yeah, that's a, that's a strong operating hypothesis. So this works from two directions. One is um, biomimicry. So we can we can take a look at how various kinds of natural systems accomplish similar uh, solutions um, to to help us get a sense of where we might be able to go. Because you know one of the primary challenges to, is to figure out how to do this. Not just to do it in a way that is effective, but also do it in a way which is uh, stable. Um, and uh, establishing mm. homeostatic equilibrium is one, not the kind of thing that human beings have actually developed a lot of skillfulness in. Um, and and two, mm. it's in fact, actually hard. But fortunately, it's the kind of thing that nature has done a very good job at over the past couple of billion years. So we can use biomimicry to give mm. us a directionality on, on how these kinds of things likely work. Um, mm. And then secondarily, because we happen to be using humans, right, because we're working with humans in this case, um, there's good reason to believe that, that the Dunbar numbers are already a representation of this kind of fractal right. organization that has been developed. So why swim hmm. upstream? Like actually use that fact right. and figure out how to just uh, enhance it and upgrade it rather than trying to redesign from scratch, which is absurdly difficult. Right, right, right. Okay, so while I am extremely tempted at this moment to sort of dive into the direction we've already established, I do want to take a step back and sort of establish a little bit of context uh, for the people that will be listening. Um, and maybe then we can, at a certain point, we can kind of dive back into the collaborative aspects of sovereignty, because that's part of what I wanted to bring up in this conversation. But before we do that, Jordan, um, I, I'm, I'm curious... You know, I don't. I, I don't think we need to really define sovereignty in the way that you have in other places. You know, both on Medium and uh, in other podcasts. And I'll, I'll link to those for people, future travelers, you know, that come by this show. Um, you, you know, that information is already out there. But what I, I do want to hear is, uh, you know, what what is it in your life, like your own experience, and in what you're seeing in the world that inspired you to create this this model of of, of sovereignty hmm um, so I guess the, the the right way to answer that is maybe to put it in in narrative in the context of actually how it emerged so what ended yes. up happening was I was from maybe 2008 specifically that there was a lot of precursor, but about 2008 to 2012 or so, uh, very vigorously working on trying to figure out how to do large-scale systemic um, thinking. So all the different kinds of systems that are in place simultaneously uh, and how they interrelate mm -hmm. with each other. Um, so the, how the economic system interacts with the uh, 
finance, I'm sorry, not finance, how, how the economic system interacts with the political system and how both interact with, say, climate um, on their own terms and mm-hmm. then separately. And what ended up happening was is that as I got near, uh, a lot of good ground was, was covered in, actually in that process, but as I got near the tail end of it, what I discovered was kind of like my own version of the Gerdel incompleteness theorem, which was hmm. um, uh, to the degree to which human beings exist. Uh, and we're introducing human beings into the problematic, we actually have to recognize that there is, my friend Dave Snowden puts it quite specifically, there is simply a difference between complexity and what he calls anthro-complexity, that Hmm. human beings add a very different characteristic than strictly physical causal systems. Um, And so then that, that then required me to begin diving deeply into human beings and since I also happen to be a human being, into myself. Um, and <laughs> this then involved the process of beginning to recognize the pretty sizable fraction of the degree to which uh, Western science doesn't actually have a lot of good answers about what's actually going on inside uh, humans. I mean, psychology is, is neat. And cognitive science is great. Neuroscience is also great. Um, but we're talking about something which is about 100 years old as a discipline in the West, meaningfully. Um, mm-hmm. maybe 150 if you give William James credit. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of, of other stuff that had to begin to be examined. And, and there's actually some pretty great work that was actually done uh, in the East in turning inward and looking at things from the subjective point of view. And when you're one to take anthrocomplexity seriously, you have to actually take human consciousness and subjectivity seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. then what happened is, is that kind of put, that put me on the path of beginning to try to formalize what is something that is uh, able to be both human and nature, taken into, into mm. account the complexity of how those relationships simultaneously emerge um, and is also closed, meaning that it, it, it grasps the, the totality, everything that needs to be taken under investigation. Um, and what ended up happening was is that I was working with a model that was for example, quite connected with John Boyd's OODA loop. You know, that's, that works quite well mm. um, in, a lot of, in a lot of different scenarios. And then one of my collaborators, a guy named Daniel Schmachtenberger, who's really got a lot more expertise in psychology and neuroscience than I do, um, mm. began, uh, we sort of began hammering on the, the OODA loop model. And instead of having the four-step OODA loop model, we actually recognized that you could get a fully compact like the most compact, meaning simultaneously the smallest and the most complete model of how these kinds of systems generically would operate is what we're now calling the sovereignty model. Mm-hmm. And, and specifically the, the kind of three domains and how they relate to each other. Exactly. So okay. just, for, yeah. just for clarity, the, the domains are the domains of uh, perception or how information flows from the outside to the inside. Uh, and then the second domain is the domain of intelligence or processing or how um, information goes into sense and sense goes into meaning. And mm-hmm. then the third domain is the domain of choice and action or how meaning goes mm-hmm. into action and how information or mm-hmm. energy flows from the inside to the outside. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea is that this is a, a general model that can describe the totality of all complex systems that have choice. Um, and, 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 and as a, as a complex, it's very yeah. cool. 
Right, right. And so I, I, I definitely want to spend most of our time kind of diving into what makes it a particularly useful tool. And so I, I, I acknowledge that it can be used for lots of different complex systems. And I think I have a particular interest in how it can be applied at the level of the individual. And so, you know, there are so many different, hmm, let's, I'll use the word kind of self-help or self-transformation systems and ideas in that whole realm of the human endeavor, right? Uh, what, what, what's different about the model of sovereignty that you're offering? Like, how does it relate to the kind of all the other stuff that's out there in, in, uh, in, from your perspective? Sure. So the, the idea is that it, it, this is that, that notion of it being complete and compact. It, it should actually allow us to do things like uh, everything that is relevant <laughs> should be included in it. Um, and so and it gives us a way to position other things in relationship to each other and also make some high-level principled propositions. So for example, one high-level proposition is if, if, you, if you imagine the three dimensions that I just, just described um, in, a, in a relationship which is called, which is called orthonormal. So if you, if you remember your mathematics when you were in high school, an XYZ space, which describes a volume. Um, mm -hmm. So each of these dimensions is now one of these X, Ys, and Zs. And what ends up happening is, is that uh, you can actually do some very interesting stuff with just straight geometry. Uh, hmm. So I'll make a proposition that hmm. in, in, any, in any situation where the, the environment is uncertain or likely to change, the optimum geometry of your sovereignty is a sphere. Hmm. All right. Now, so you can, if you can visualize the sphere, what ends up happening is that, we, that means is that the vector or the, uh, the, the magnitude of perception, intelligence, and agency are the same. Right? That's the definition of the sphere is that the, the <clears throat> radius in each direction is identically the same. And, and so what that means is there's a, a symmetry between your capacity to relate to the world and your capacity to act on the world. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and a sphere is the, is the shape that has the, the highest volume per unit surface area. So if you think about this in the, in the context of evolution, where any capacity, which is to say any, anything that changes the vector length along any one of these dimensions has a cost. It has an energetic cost. It has a risk cost. Um, the portfolio, which is to say the, the, the sort of the many, many, many different variable uh, strategy that has the optimum adaptive capacity, in this case, this is going to be the volume of your sovereignty for the, the minimum cost, which is going to be defined by the surface area of the sphere, is a sphere. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a very abstract and very complicated statement. Yes. But <laughs> the point is it's actually true and uh -huh. therefore can be useful in guiding decisions. Um, and by the way, I can move this from a theoretical into a more embodied. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, I, 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 can you down translate that for me and for my audience, <laughs> for the audience that might be listening? Absolutely. I, 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 I don't, I don't follow. So th think about it in the concept of uh, my, my my preferred metaphor is martial arts, but you can do it in dance or mm -hmm. in say some sport like basketball, soccer, or hockey. Um, you know the or, or football. The 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 a primary rule is to be in balance. Mm -hmm. So when you're in balance, your capacity to respond to what happens next is at its maximum. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so if my weight is, is well positioned over my feet, if my body is neither left nor right, if I'm very, very centered, then I can move in whatever direction I need to move with the maximum speed and the maximum power mm-hmm. with, by the way, the minimum amount of instability next. Right? So this is when, when I'm in uncertainty. And so if you think about like the, I don't know if you've got this is at all in your background, but uh, a middle linebacker in football, when the ball is snapped, Mm-hmm. Um, the base, the basic response is bend your knees, chop your legs, put your head on a swivel, which is to prepare yourself to be able to respond to what happens next. And it turns out that is a sphere. That is, mm-hmm. you are perfectly balancing all of your potential. So you're not over biasing mm-hmm. too much perception. You're not over biasing too much lean in action. You're in a space of balance. Same thing for a dancer, for a uh, hockey, you know, basketball, any of these. So at a physical level. Many people have experienced this notion. It's being poised to respond. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what ends up happening is, so if we think about this from the point of view of, 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 of martial arts, what you want to do then is you'll, you'll be in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a relationship where you will move back and forth from a position of balance to a position of action, back into a position of balance. Right? So if, mm-hmm. I, if I allow myself to swing a, swing a haymaker, put all of my energy into agency, what ends up happening is, <laughs> is that my ability to perceive what's going on around me and to respond to it has now been pushed way out. So you can imagine my sphere mm. is now way out of round. I've got a long vector in agency and a tiny vector in perception. So now I'm super vulnerable. And in fact, quite likely if my haymaker didn't land, I'm about to get hit in the face. Mm-hmm. Um, so what ends up happening is that you have – so now move this – take this sphere and now put it in time. So now what it looks like is – and this is to me a beautiful visual metaphor uh, – a very large soap bubble floating in the air. Mm-hmm. And you know how – notice how it sort of comes in and out of shape and it fluctuates. Mm. Notice that because of the laws of, um, of, of, the laws of physics, the, the electrostatic – the binding of the soap wants to form a sphere because that's the lowest energy state for – uh, that it can get to. So it is the, the most efficient space shape for a soap bubble is a sphere. But gravity is pulling it down, so it has a tendency to go flat. Buoyancy is pulling it up, and then the wind is buffeting it. So you now get this really cool thing where there's a, a natural physics tendency, in this case mm-hmm. chemistry and physics combining, to pull it into the shape of the sphere. But then you have its adaptive response to, to several different vector forces that are moving it out of shape. And that actually is what I at least visualize when I imagine how a mm. human being's sovereignty is relating to the environment that you happen to be in and mm. push it outside of its responsive capacity and it pops. Mm. You fall out of sovereignty mm. and you no longer have any capacity to respond to your environment unless and until you get back into it. Mm-hmm. And okay, so j- just to even take it down maybe a little bit more on the individual level, when you say fall out of sovereignty, what might that look like in somebody's life? So I can do it along all the different dimensions, but let me just do uh, three. Yeah. So one, which I think is, is, is in some sense the most obvious or most, or most uh, it's not the most common, but it's going to be the most uh, ready to mind for people who are thinking about this from a personal development perspective, might mm-hmm. be emotional overwhelm. So mm-hmm. you, your emotional uh, manifold the, the the ability of your emotions to receive sensations from the environment, to to generate sense making, and then to use that sense making to generate meaningfulness in your in your experience, um, has a certain capacity, has a certain limit, 
And so if you have an emotional overwhelm, uh, let's say, for example, you get frightened or you get angry um, past a, a certain threshold, what ends up happening is uh, this will interrupt the other aspects of, in this case, your sense and meaning-making system, which is going to be that second vector. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so you'll, dro you'll drop out. You'll, you'll begin to lose responsiveness. You'll lose, in, in, for example, perception. It's, it's, and we'll think about this just at a biological level. If you get angry, anger happens. What happens is your body goes into an immediate reactive mode. A lot of things are going to be done that take you out of a, a position of having choice into a position of simply reacting causally to your environment. Your pupils will dilate, your breathing, respiratory rate will increase, adrenaline will start flowing, your heart rate, heart rate will increase. And what will end up happening is things, for example, your um, brain will begin to move blood flow and uh, neurological priority from the prefrontal cortex into the amygdala. And your portfolio of possible choices that you can make will, in fact, dramatically collapse. Mm -hmm. So you'll be making worse choices. Um, so that's an example of how this sort of thing can happen. And by the way, fear works more or less the same way. Those two are obviously quite and, combined. And, and so in, in, if we had access to this model of sovereignty, we might say, oh, you know, the first domain has become overwhelmed, right? The, the domain of sensing or perceiving. Um, and how, what would I, how could I then use the model or, or, or how would it then play to help me get back into, into sovereignty? So there's two different directions to look at. One is in, in the moment, and then the second is sort of over time, longitudinally. Um, in, in the moment, uh, the, the, the way to deal with some kind of breakdown in sovereignty, and by the way, I don't know if you've watched any of my other videos, but you can do the same thing in terms of the relationship between the self and complexity. But mm. uh, in the domain of sovereignty is to um, move yourself into a place of um, allowing the, the equilibrium to reestablish. So you actually have to move yourself into a lower level of um, input. Uh, so mm. if, you, if you become angry, two things have to happen. One is you have to – so imagine so imagine that sphere. Right? So the sphere is your sphere of sovereignty. And anything inside that sphere is something that you can respond to out of sovereignty. Mm -hmm. If it's outside of the sphere, you can no longer respond to it. So what happens is, is that you get emotional overwhelm. Something happens that makes you angry. That sphere has now decreased, or specifically the volume of the sphere has decreased. It's actually just changed shape meaningfully. Mm -hmm. Certain things are now that used to be inside the sphere are now outside the sphere. So first, first rule, right. no longer endeavor to engage in things that are outside of your sphere of sovereignty. Mm -hmm. um, a classic example is if you're in relationship with another person and something that's happened that has caused you to be angry – no longer believe that you can actually have the same relational dynamics. You can't continue the conversation in a state of anger that you had before you're in a state of anger. You may be able to continue to have a conversation, but you need to be now having a conversation which is within the boundaries of what your current state of sovereignty is. Hmm. Um, so this is actually rather important. You know, if you're uh, think about it like as, as a skier, if you're skiing yeah. down a hill and you begin to lose control, you have to slow down. Mm -hmm. You have to reduce the amount of chaos that's being introduced mm -hmm. into your system because your system's ability to respond to chaos is itself being reduced. And what's happening is, is that you're struggling because on the one hand, your ability to respond to chaos is going down. And on the other hand, because of that, the amount of chaos is going up. Mm. So you have to actually compensate pretty substantially. You have to slow quite substantially down. And then – and this, by the way, usually involves – 
some set of practices that are appropriate. You, you'd like to build some habits. Like, for example, if you're in an argument or if you're in a relationship and it moves into a state of anger, it's useful to have built certain habits that are associated with this state of sovereignty. Oh, mm. gosh, I'm angry. So one, noticing, mm. being able to notice what state you're in and what that implies. Okay, that means I need to stop doing these kinds of things. And here's things that I have habitually designed are within my zone. So I'll start breathing. Maybe um, I'll, note, I'll mention to the other individual what state I'm in. So there's communication. So the mutual mm. sovereignty has perception and has the ability to have understanding right. and then can make good choices in that context. Okay, great. You're angry. Why don't we move the venue? Let's just go for a walk or why don't you go for or whatever it happens to be, right? So right. you can think of this as a, just a constant set of feedback loops between the conditions, the shape, the volume of your sovereignty in context, and then what that means in terms of the relationship between your ability to be responsible, the way to respond to your environment, and then the choices that the, – the effective choices mm -hmm. that you can make in that context. Mm -hmm. And then it's a feedback loop. Right, right, right. And it gives you a kind of framework for the infinite game of learning how to be human. That's correct. Okay. That is right. It is, it is in some sense the, the – the basic manual. It's almost like a compass. Yeah. And so this is, I think, uh, I wanted to hear your thoughts on this because as I was listening to some of your other interviews and, and, and reading your articles about sovereignty, it, it, it occurred to me that it's almost like uh, a way that we can transcend and include all the other things that are thought of as self-development, right? Uh, it, it sort of enables a modularization of the sea of practices, approaches, and techniques that are out there that we're kind of swimming in. And I, I'm at least that was the possibility that occurred to me as I kind of started to download it into my system. Is that what you created it for? How do you see that relationship to like say? And maybe we'll actually we'll go through individual aspects of self development. But um, is that how you see it as a kind of meta modular approach? <laughs> I, I do not. Huh. Okay. Um, which is to say that that's, that's just not. I don't really come from that world at all, and so huh. it's not my. Uh, my intent, um, Daniel might. And so that's a, a worthy conversation to have with him. And he has vastly, vastly more experience with that world than I do. Uh, and he has a mindset that does try to create meta uh, frameworks that are able to transcend and include. In fact, he actually uses the phrases transcend and include. So I assume you guys come from similar schools. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, from my perspective, what ends up happening is, is that I, I like to have um, clear and compact frameworks with which to operate and in particular ways to make have higher likelihood of making effective choices and what i noticed is that as i uh, in my narrative around 2013 actually began delving into this large milieu uh, broadly known as personal development these days mm -hmm. um, what i noticed was that um, there wasn't a lot of rigor there was a lot of good stuff that was practically useful, quite often burdened with a lot of narrative that was distracting and not necessary. Mm -hmm. um, and that as I continued to kind of pull all of these pieces in, grab the, the elements that were definitely useful and seemed to work quite well, and then integrate them into uh, a framework that just continued to be self-consistent, and with an, an orientation towards always trying to have it be um, expansive, like generative. It's not, it doesn't just close. It actually is generative. It can be creative. It can help you actually 
imagine new possibilities. Mm-hmm. I just kept finding myself oriented in this direction. So that when when Daniel began proposing the the sovereignty model, um, it just proved to be quite quite useful. Um, but I, I do notice that it does really help to to do a couple of things. It helps to uh, make sense of a lot of the other frameworks that are out there. It also helps to avoid a lot of the errors that one can run right. into. Uh, for example, over-biasing in a particular direction uh, is a kind of a classic error. And this allows you to say, okay, well, if the principle of sphericity, if the principle of, of balance is in fact a solid principle, then um, don't get overly biased in the direction of interior mindfulness. Um, also spend a meaningful amount, an equivalent, a symmetrical amount of time on exterior expressivity. Hmm. Um, and it's actually useful and necessary to have those things in balance. Um, so that's, that's an example. And, and in balance, it seems like you said in balance in terms of time spent to, in service of that domain. Is that how you tend to think of it? Um, well, I mean, it's going to be called effective time. So it's going to be some multiplicative factor of the absolute time and your ability to use that time well. Mm. So, mm. you know, I'll use, give me an ex- as an example. I, I uh, developmentally have a very high, because of the way that I grew up, a very high amount of ability to use time in the intellectual domain. And it has been an awful lot of work for me to be able to use time in the emotional, introspective, self-focused domain. So I didn't mm-hmm. build that as a child mm-hmm. or as a teenager or as an adult. <laughs> um, and so these days I might have to spend say 50 hours on things that have to do more with self-awareness and feeling perception for every hour I spend on abstract intellectualism. Interesting. Um, right. To sort of have an equivalent amount of effective time. Right. But this is the point. I, in fact, do right. because it's necessary to get those things into balance. Because you have a model of sovereignty. Right. And and so, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, just for, so you have some context like uh, – I've been talking to people who I used to live in a monastery where we did a lot of intensive mindfulness practice. And I, I, I speak with some of the people who still live there about this model, um, you know, hoping that it will encourage them to see with a greater degree as, of balance, really, about the arc of their developmental life, right? That they're going to do all this intensive mindfulness practice and then go back out into the world and you know, how do we orient ourselves in that case? And and also, you know, breaking the illusion that I can just meditate myself into the place I want to be. Like, what do we really want when we're, you know, working on ourselves? It seems like this model also helps us move towards some kind of coherence around answering that question. Well, the word coherence is exactly right. Um, this model is designed to be able to allow us to have some orientation on how to enter into coherence with ourselves and then in a way that allows that coherence to scale into higher orders of coherence. So that's, I think it's very important. It is, uh, in my personal experience, I found that it is perfectly viable to meditate into a particular state that is um, self-sustaining on its own terms. Uh, you, you, one, one, in fact, can achieve enlightenment by turning inward. But that state is precisely incapable of entering into embodied relationship with anything else. 
Um, mm. And so that's the point here is endeavoring to find something that actually has the ability to enter into embodied relationship um, at its center. So this is a key aspect is to say, okay, I want to be able to achieve coherence myself and no, and in no way lose out on my ability to achieve coherence as an individual. But I also want to be able to achieve coherence in relationship. And I also want to be able to achieve coherence in community. Mm. And I also want to be able to achieve coherence in world. Mm. Hmm. And, and can, can you say a little bit more about, about this idea of, you know, you, you said you can, you can turn in, in inward and achieve some kind of what you said, enlightenment, but then once you take it out into the world, the, is it that the uncertainty or the complexity kind of breaks that sense or, or tell me more about that process for you? Well, let's go back to those three vectors. Um, so imagine that I now have this, this, this second vector that is a mile high. Um, and I'm endeavoring to communicate to someone else. Well, I'm going to have to have a skillfulness in communication and in relationship with another that is equivalent in magnitude, complexity, <laughs> nuance, and detail. <laughs> 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 Um, perfect storm. <laughs> you got a guest appearance by your dog. It's good. <laughs> I'll put him in. I'll put him in the show notes. Be, uh, <laughs> he's got. He's a very attractive little mini labradoodle. So you can uh, <laughs> send me a picture. I'll include it. I'll include it. Yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, you're gonna if you want to communicate the the whatever whatever it happens to be the content of this experience of enlightenment with other people requires a, a skillfulness in in communication and relationship, which is of the same order of magnitude as the experience itself. And mm. so, and this of course is, is a common problem. Uh, you know, somebody who is say deeply, deeply intuitive, um, may perceive all kinds of interesting stuff very powerfully, but they may not even be able to understand it themselves, much less communicate it to other people. Mm. Um, and so what ends up happening is that that creates, if you think about it, like, if you imagine a, a loop that starts with perception, ends in agency, and then it opens up into perception and agency again, uh, and you imagine it as kind of like a tube or a, a channel. Um, let's say, for example, in this case, a highly intuitive individual has a super high channel at one level in perception. Mm -hmm. But it gets super narrow if they don't also have an equivalently large channel at understanding. Mm. And maybe even more narrow if they don't have an equivalently large channel at agency. And so what ends mm. up happening is that it comes back out into the world this massive channel has been constrained to a pinprick on the other side. And so its output back into world is minuscule. Hmm. Um, and th so that's an example, right? So if, if, you, if you do a lot of work on being able to have, say, incredible deep mindfulness and insight, but you then don't do the work of figuring out how to connect that with the skillfulness of action to be able to re render that same level of uh, elegance in how you make a choice to act and then how well, how skillfully you act mm. in the world, mm. um, there's just a loss. And it may be an enormous loss depending on the asymmetry of those two pieces. Mm. Mm. Yeah, right. And and so and and one piece I feel like that's that's really useful to kind of um uh highlight is is I think a lot of people reduce this kind of relationship to to your awareness or your consciousness. I think people often say, um, and your action in the world, right? Uh, and they forget about this middle piece 
of making sense and making meaning. Um, and yes, that's quite correct. I okay, agree. cool. Could you could you just kind of say more about that because it feels really vital, and I'm not quite sure I have maybe the, uh, the that domain the complexity in that domain to really even express what I'm feeling. But I'll, I'll leave it to you. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So b- before we do that, I, I just want to point one thing out that is not obvious and is really actually quite challenging, which is that um, these these domains are themselves extremely complex and actually have a lot of little feedback loops inside of them. So if I take a look at the one that we're about to focus on, the second mm-hmm. one of sense making and, and meaning making. Um, you know, just just the layers of say the emotional layer, the feeling layer, and the intellectual layer are all different. Um, they're all related to each other in very nuanced ways, and each one has its own specific dynamics. So, as I mentioned in the example, I might have emotional overwhelm, but that emotional overwhelm will have an impact on my intellectual capacity, and you know, my intellectual capacity can itself have impact on my emotional state. You know, so one of the classic uh, dynamics that I've I use is, is the concept of, of a loop. So it's the difference between fear and panic. Hmm. Um, fear is when an input comes into my body and generates a, uh, a sense making that indicates the appropriate state change in action is what's known as the fear hmm. state, right? So adrenaline firing and all those kind of ways that cause your body to be able to respond to fly, to fly, to get the heck out of dodge. Uh, and that's all, there, that's all there is to it. But because we happen to have brains and our brains are connected, the the state of fear percolates up from the from the adrenal system and from the amygdala to the neocortex. But the neocortex wants to make sense of it. It wants to actually tell a story mm-hmm. about it. And so the neocortex might tell a story and say, uh, you know, there's a monster, you know, something like that, something horrible story. Well, that story isn't just by itself. That has downward causation. So my neocortex is making sense of what my body is already processing. Fear has happened for milliseconds before I, my neocortex is even aware of what's going on. Hmm. Most of the major work of the fear process is well done before my neocortex is even playing, mm-hmm. part, playing mm-hmm. a role. But um, the neocortex then comes in. Well, if the neocortex then makes up a story, that which story when processed generates more fear, now I get into a really cool mm-hmm. loop that my neocortex generates fear. The fear comes back up. The neocortex now feels really justified in feeling fear. Holy shit. Because it, it, it only can perceive the information that's coming into it. So, so that's important to keep in mind. Yeah. And, and, and right, I'll so, just add, I just want to say as an aside, if you are a meditator, you have observed this feedback loop. So pay attention. Right. Right. Yeah. That's right. Right. Um, and there's actually some very interesting, like really high quality neuroscience on how it works, why it works, uh, evolutionary developmental science on how it came to be the way that it is. And then as a consequence, some really nice uh, insight on how we can, we can, using what we know, become more capable of, of navigating the consequences of the, the way we have, the way we are in the world as people. Mm. Okay. So then, so then what I want to do is I want to bind or, or, or clarify the concepts of sense making and meaning making. Um, so, so sense making, and, and this is all just the way I'm using the term. So mm-hmm. there are people out there in the world who use the word sense, sense making. And, uh, I do not believe we, we have not all kind of gathered together in a, uh, scholia <laughs> and hammered out a formal definition. Yeah, yeah. So think of this as just a, uh, a term of art that I happen to be using in this way mm-hmm. that I don't claim any authority here. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I'm using it to mean the, the space or the bridge between sensing or perception and understanding, processing intelligence. So, you know, uh, light comes into my eye. 
that is raw perception. It is just light. That is just retinal cells receiving signal and transforming it in some way. But in the act of transforming it in some way, they are beginning the process of converting something from raw sensorium into some level of sense making. They are selecting some portion of the sensorium to ignore and some portion of the sensorium to upregulate. Mm-hmm. Well, my retinal signals now bind. I've got lots of retinal cells that are perceiving light, and they're all doing their own microsense making. The way that microsense making comes into the optic nerve is itself another sense making piece. This optic nerve can receive certain pieces and cannot receive other pieces, upregulate some things, downregulates other things. From the optic nerve, it comes into uh, the visual cortex. Now, the visual cortex is itself can pay, can, can, contains many, many different layers, some of which are organized in serial, meaning they process one after the other. So the input from one requires the output of the one before it, some of which operate in parallel. They're all kind of doing mm-hmm. different things, and then they bind later. Each one of these steps is a step where certain portions of what is being received are given more, they're upregulated, and certain portions are given less. Well, that's the process of sense-making. I am taking the, or what is the, mm-hmm. the, the blooming, buzzing confusion of world, and I am abstracting that into something that is refined enough that I can actually do something with it. I am taking this giant input and converting it into hopefully a very compact and yet practical um, unit of understanding, which then plugs into the mechanism of understanding. Now, this mechanism of understanding is itself highly modal. I've got my emotional layer. I've got my feeling layer. I've got my intellectual cognitive layers and many others. Um, and we've got, I don't know, I think we've now identified thousands of different kinds of intelligence that are at work. Mm-hmm. This complex sense-making that is coming in from perception and being already processed as it's coming in and all different kinds of intelligence are already at work in selecting which pieces are being made into sense um, now enters into the middle stage, which is the handoff from sense-making to meaning-making. So now what's happening is there's uh, – uh, uh, questions of disposition. Um, should I s- change my state into a state that has different relationships to environment? So for example, I hear a loud bang. Should I change my state to a state of alert, of alarm? Now, what's interesting is that that state changes itself an entirely different capacity to respond to your environment. You might imagine I've gone from sphere to something that looks maybe a little bit more like an, uh, a cylinder. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a state change. It's actually a shape to the overall totality of everything. Uh, and 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 how uh, what other kind of dispositional shifts should be occurring in how I'm responding to the environment, the, the sense that's coming in, and then simultaneously I then have another signal that's actually coming from the other side, from action, from agency in the world, which is my dispositional relationship to my environment is sending signals back to my sense, indicating what kinds of choices might be available or effective mm-hmm. right now. So you know if I'm if I'm a hammer, everything looks like a nail, if that makes sense. You know, if, if I, I'm already kind of dispositionally relating to the world, and this is feeding back on the, in, the way that I'm understanding what's happening in the world that puts me in a position to be able to, to, to narrow down right. from all the possible choices I could make to the set of choices that I will make uh, with, obviously, from an evolutionary perspective, a strong orientation towards making choices that end up being effective actions to increase my adaptive fitness in my environment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, okay. and that's, of course, it's meaning. Yes, yes. And I, I want to I spend more time in, in that space. But first, I want to pause and, and just in terms of the sense-making 
perception distinction, um, you know, in the domain of perception, the first domain, uh, the, the kind of control I have is essentially where I direct my attention, right? That's, and, and, and the degree to which I am capable of letting in whatever the, uh, you know, uh, aha, uh-huh. that last part's really, really important. And yes, so that there's a lot of work that could be done at the level of perception. And there's actually, there's three distinct things that can be done. So one is going to be the ability, I'm going to call it, call it listen. Uh, although, of course, obviously, I'm not talking about hearing. I'm talking about the ability to deploy a larger portfolio of modalities to perceive. Right, right, right. So, so like emotional uh, versus the I thinking think, process. Yes, okay. Right. And, and, and each one of these has their own individual capacity. So I can practice my ability to see and my ability to hear, but I can also practice my ability to see and hear and, and, and allow that meta process see, hear, smell, touch, taste, feel. You know, if, you, if you imagine all the modalities, each one of which has its own intrinsic capacity right. and then combined has their own meta capacity. Okay. And, then, and, and I can be in conflict. Like if I shut down part of my feeling system, if I'm inhibiting my feeling system, then I'm really rate limiting and constraining my perceptive capacity in general. Right, right, so right, right, right. a lot of personal development work goes into that, and, right? yeah. becoming more yeah. integrated. And, and just opening up channels that for whatever reason you might have closed. Like it sounds like, as you mentioned earlier in the conversation, you kind of rate limited your emotional uh, modality, right? And now you're working to kind of open yep. that back up again so that your sovereignty is, is more well-rounded. You've got okay. it exactly. That's and, exactly and so, it. And, and people, I, I just want to urge people that if, if you can d- dive more into these definitions of the domains online, I, I don't want to spend too much time recovering this territory because it has been covered on other podcasts that we'll link to. Um, and I, I, I want to move back into this. So that's perception, right? We have this all these kind of levers that we can pull on to kind of get more data, get more bandwidth, uh, be able to relate to more modalities, have more subtlety in our perception. But then we move into sense making. And, and one thing that's not clear to me is like, do is your sense of it, what, what control or what relationship do we have to sense making? That seems much more automatic. Like, or is it? What, tell me what your perspective is on that. Well, I, I think it's, it's, it's somewhat similar. So let me just use a very simple example. Um, right now, we are currently in the process of, of hopefully collaboratively increasing our individual and collective sense-making capacity, which is to say that we are, through conversation, um, clarifying ideas, understanding how they operate, where they work, where they don't work, how they can be employed effectively in the world. And so that's you know, building a sense-making capacity. When you're in medias rest, you know, think about like the, the boxer when the, or the baseball player. When the ball is being pitched, there's not a lot of room for using choice at that moment to choose how to sense-make. All of these elements in some sense are in medias rest happening. What, what does in medias rest mean? Uh, in, the in the middle of the okay. in, in the okay. moment. Yeah. Uh, when, when, the, when the shit is hitting the fan, your responsiveness is going to be what it is. Um, mm. And then you have you always have a limited amount, but we should be re- mindful of the fact that the choice is very small bandwidth. It's tiny. Um, I, I think they actually even tried to measure it in cognitive neuroscience, and it's measured in sort of like double-digit bits, not <laughs> megabits, and not hundreds of bits, not kilobits. Yeah. It's, it's tiny. Yeah. It's real, but it's small. Yes. Yes. So a lot of this is stuff where 
we, we, we in the moment are, are working with the capacities that we have and the tools that we have built, which if we've done a good job, give a lot of leverage to the choice making that mm-hmm. we have, right? So this is again, you know, there's a difference in a fight between somebody who's trained to fight mm-hmm. and somebody who hasn't. Um, and, the, and that difference is the degree to which the person who's trained to fight has built a very large number of habits that can run high bandwidth and can respond to a large number of different scenarios. And so the choice-making capacity is now watching what's coming in from perception, seeing how the sense-making is, or is, is turning it into, oh, here's what's happening, and then is at the level of meaningfulness – then using that to select. Yeah, and yeah, okay. And and I, I, I feel like I understand the perception piece, um, and and kind of our. I mean, this the language is a bit messy here, but like our role there in that domain, right? We talked about that a little bit. Like, which modalities do you pay attention to? How much bandwidth have you cultivated there? So on and so forth. In the meaning making domain, it's also clear to me. And well, maybe we can talk more about this, but the degree of kind of how I can constellate different meanings or learn to weave different meanings or, or, or unweave certain meanings that actually prohibit my sovereignty. But then in the case of sense making, I'm still, I, I, maybe I'm just missing something, but I'm still not clear, like what other that, I mean, I, I just don't see the difference by the time it arises into my consciousness, aren't I already making meaning out of it? Well, this is, this is the key. Um, so what I want to do is I actually want to drill, drill down on the concept of meaning. And I think that's where a lot of interesting stuff right. will happen. Um, because uh, what I would like to say or, or propose is that the – think about the term like what this means, that, that phrase, the, what this means. And think about it in, in the context of the fact that we use the word means as means to an end mm-hmm. as well as the yes. meaning of something. And, and I don't think that's accidental because meaning is fundamentally connected with agency. Mm-hmm. That the meaningfulness of something is its relationship to the world, your ability to, to use it or to make choices and actions in the world. And so the sense of something is separate from agency, the transition from the sense of something to how it can be effectively used to make choices in the world is the transition from sense to meaning. Does that make sense? Honestly, honestly, or, it, or it, more to the point, yeah, is it meaningful? It doesn't, it's still not, it's still not clicking on me. I feel like I'm, 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 can, can you try, try to say it one more time in, in maybe a slightly different way or, or I might just be missing some piece. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It is, it is, it is. Well, it's, it's, it's less likely that you're missing some piece than that the word and concept of meaning for you already has a lot of, almost certainly the case, has a lot of stuff mm-hmm. loaded on it. And so what we're trying to do is we're actually trying to, we're trying to enter into coherence using, well, not just using words, which are themselves pretty poor tools for the process, but using words alone. Like I can't see right. your face. We're not in the same physical place. So the, 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 the perception capacity in our collaborative sovereignty is actually pretty yes. low. And we're dealing with a pretty tough thing. So that this may be outside the boundaries of our mm-hmm. collective sovereignty, mm-hmm. right? So that's a good mm-hmm. way of using the concept. So, but let me go back. Um, let me think of a good example. Oh, okay. So imagine a hammer. Now try to do this. 
try to imagine holding the hammer in your hand, the weight of it, the feel of it. Now, as you're doing that, now try to imagine deploying the weight of that hammer, moving the hammer towards hitting mm -hmm. a nail. Okay? Now move back. Move back towards feeling the weight of the hammer in your hand. Now imagine it's no longer in your hand. You're just looking at it on the table. Now you're not just looking at it on the table. You're just imagining a hammer. Maybe you're looking at a photograph of a hammer in a, in a book. And then you're imagining a hammer in your mind. And notice the difference between the embodied sensibility. Even just looking at a picture of a hammer, your hand is already communicating. Your hand is already feeling and changing its dispositional relationship to the possibility of nailing. That connection, the connection between the hammer hitting mm. the nail and the perception is meaning. Hmm. Right? Meaning is the is the is the is the hand hitting the holding the hammer hitting the nail. On the other side, you see a toolbox. Inside the toolbox, there are a bunch of different tools. Your eye is looking around. You don't quite know what you're looking at. Suddenly, you notice something that has a certain shape that reveals itself to, oh, it's a hammer. That's sense. Right? You're converting I from see. uncertainty, noise, un, you know, incoherence into noticing, into being able to name something. You're able to, to drop it into a point right. of clarity. Right, right. Um, and of course, the hand up there, in the case of a hammer, is quite immediate. Once you notice that it's a hammer, once you've made sense of it, then immediately giant aspects of your body begin the process of imagining what it would feel like to hold the hammer. By the way, if it's Mjolnir <laughs> instead of a, a hammer for a, a nail, everything in your body right, just changed. Right, right. <laughs> um, and that's that uh, meaning. What uh, do you do with it? What's uh -huh. it useful for? Is it a good idea now? Am I good at it? Am I effective with it? All those kinds of questions have right, to do with meaning. Right. Okay, cool. That. That clarifies it for me. Um, and so for maybe then we can talk a little bit about this handoff between making sense and making meaning. And then I want to spend some more time Ooh. in the meaning making. Okay. Um, that's a great handoff. It is, is of singular importance and uh, extremely challenging. You can think of it as like the white hot center mm. of consciousness. Um, because as, as you know, I've been talking about it as if it goes from perception through to action, but in point of fact, of course, it also goes from action yes. back to perception that, like I said, if I have a hammer in my hand, everything looks like a nail. There's a communication from who I am in the world and what I am doing, what matters to me now, what is the place where I should be focusing my attention, energy, and activity, which is, you know, pushing one direction. And then there's kind of a, a child's mind, pure, unaffected, uh, raw perception of what is true, what mm -hmm. is the case in the world that's coming from the other direction. And those two things combine. They collide mm. with each other. Um, so sense-making is coming from the direction of truth. Meaning-making is coming from the direction, from the direction mm. of adaptiveness, effectiveness, utility, use in the world. If you're familiar at all with the interesting debate that happened between Jordan Peterson mm -hmm. and Sam yes. Harris, Sam Harris sense making, Jordan Peterson right. is meaning making. Right. Okay. If they could figure out how to collaborate, they would yes. be sovereign. Ooh. Okay. A lot of pieces just fell for me in terms of me making, or I guess making meaning out of what what that was. That's that's. Wow. Okay. Uh, can. Mm. Uh, um, can. Oh man, I, I'm sorry. My, my my head actually just kind of like 
flipped a little bit um, when that made sense. So that's really cool. Can, can you say a little bit more about, about that, that space in between? Because I feel like maybe here's a question, actually. Um, in that conversation between meaning and truth, uh, you know, Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris, what would some kind of bridge look like? Like, how could we let the flow happen there so that they attain coherence? Mm, that's a very good question. And I have to say that um, I know that, that Brett Weinstein actually hosted or mo- what's that called? Mm-hmm. Stood in between and, and uh, helped them have a conversation. I do not know if he was successful in, in bridging that gap. Um, hmm. Okay, that's actually a really good question. Let me see if I've got anything on that that is worth saying. Well, first, okay, let me let me do this. Um, I think there's two. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Good. This, mm-hmm. this is I think it'd be a good thread. So there's, there's a couple of paths we can take. Uh, one is the difference between thinking and simulated mm. thinking, um, and another, which is related is the notion of kind of disposition or habits of mind. Um, so let me start with disposition and habits of okay. mind because that's the most healthy. Um, there's an actual difference between a carpenter and an architect. Yes. All right. And an architect is largely coming more from the direction of sense-making. Um, you know, they're operating in a very abstract domain where the action in the world is largely <laughs> intellectual um, and largely disembodied. So it's, there's meaning to be had for sure, but they're coming from the direction of sense-making and things need to fit together more at the level of frameworks than at the level of mm-hmm. embodied reality. A carpenter is much more coming from the direction of meaning-making. You know, things actually mm-hmm. just have to fit together mm-hmm. in a physical sense. Um, now, Fortunately, we live in a world where architects have built real skillfulness in conveying what they're trying to, the sense they're trying to make to carpenters. And carpenters have learned how to collaborate with architects to be able to then uh, execute on that and make meaning out of the blueprints that are sitting in front of them. But think about that. I don't know if you've ever looked Mm -hmm. at at architectural drawings, um, but the translation from a blueprint to a building is a meaning making exercise. And Non-trivial, quite quite, quite a a bit of work. Um, So we're going to call that a shared language. Um, Or what is that that cool thing? Um, Mm. A pattern language. That's even better. I'm not going to make a pattern pattern language. Yes. Um, If you want to say a little bit about it, yeah. Yeah. So there's a whole... Say a little bit about it. It's actually not my area of expertise. Uh, There's a whole discipline of people who've done great work in that area. Um, I believe his name is Christopher Alexander. Let me check that really quick. Yep. Christopher Alexander, who is an extraordinarily skilled architect, but has written a series of magnificent books. You might call them like, what would happen if an architect Mm. decided to do fundamental philosophy? Um, And one of the books that that he ended up spending meaningful time on early in his career, as I understand it, uh, is called A Pattern Language. And there's a whole bunch of, in 1977, a whole bunch of other people who have built on that concept. And I would say a pattern language is the kind of the fundamental, most most abstract or most basic foundational basis for any kind of shared language. Um, and it is precisely the bridge hmm. between sense and meaning. 
um, some kind of pattern language, some way of bridging the gap between what is true and what is meaningful. Now, now hold that if you can. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm going to put another load on, but the load is mm-hmm. hopefully on a, in, in a different hand. And talk about this distinction between thinking and simulated thinking. Uh, this is a neologism that I, I made up a couple of months ago to try to make a make a point, but I think it's 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 useful. It's not too hard. Um, the idea is that uh, there's a, there's a difference, um, Kahneman, in thinking fast and thinking slow. I think put the finest point on that. There's a there's a difference between uh, the kind of thinking that we might call habit thought, uh, like when you we've learned how to drive a car to the point where you can get from point A to point B without even necessarily noticing what you were doing. Right? It's become almost completely habit. Thinking fast, it's very able to do stuff without a whole lot of effort or load or consciousness. And a different kind of thinking, which is, call it, I call it explore mode. Uh, it's playful, mm-hmm. it whines, it moves around. It actually is very clumsy and slow if you're actually trying to do something with it specifically. But it's precisely the right kind of thinking to be able to um, navigate an unknown, an unknown space. Um, now, there's a relationship between explore mode and habit mode that is extremely effective. It's the only way to truly be a, in the world. Now, I'm going to call that entire relationship mm-hmm. thinking with a capital T. So thinking with a capital T is when you have the ability to use explore mode and habit mode mm-hmm. fluidly. When it's time to explore, you explore. When it's time to have it, you have it. When it's time to transition between the two, you do. There's another thing that I'm calling simulated thinking, mm-hmm. again, capital S, capital T, which is where you lose the thread and you begin to actually start to build things that are habits, but take themselves as being explorations. Um, we might hmm. call these ideologies um, or religions in the, in the negative sense. Hmm. Um, hmm. Uh, obligate frameworks for thinking. There's a whole bunch of stuff here. Like um, instead of oh, what's it? It's a it's selecting rather than choosing. Like there's a list of appropriate right. responses, and my job is just to select from the list, as opposed to having the capacity to innovate <sighs> a completely novel response ab nihilo. Like that's part of the difference. Okay, so one of the problems that I I think I perceive, and I may be wrong, but I, I, I don't. I've never actually met Sam Harris or Jordan Peterson in person, um, and I'm actually, frankly, much less familiar with Sam Harris's virtual persona than I am with Jordan Peterson's virtual persona because mm-hmm. I just happened mm-hmm. to engage with Peterson's work earlier, oh, wow. much earlier. I actually okay. re- I read his book like ten years ago, which is yeah. unusual, unusually kismet. Um, nonetheless, I I get the sense that. Um, there is a breakdown in thinking in their relationship that the there's still a strong desire on the part or one or both of them to impose a hmm. prefab paradigm, a, a currently existing model in their own framework of how to respond to what's happening. You know, Sam wants to make sense of what Jordan is saying but he wants to make sense of it mm-hmm. in Sam's paradigm. And this is actually not thinking. And this is also not collaboration. In order to, to it, it can work. Like I, you, can, you can achieve consensus or you can, you can dominate. It, it, those are two are possible. And, and sometimes that's the right thing to do. You know, when Elon Musk wants to make Tesla work, 
he's doing a lot less thinking and collaborating than he is just getting other people to make good choices right. based upon being extensions of his own individual sovereignty. Nonetheless, uh, if you're endeavoring to bridge the kind of gap that you perceive or I perceive when I see the, the Sam Harris, Jordan Peterson interaction, the valid response, the way to do it is that you have to actually drop into a fully hmm. liminal space. You have to completely dispense with any notion that you actually know what's happening, which means you have to drop your prefab responses to the world. You can no longer select from your high quality toolkit of how to make sense of and take action in the world. Mm -hmm. And you have to move into beginner's mind. You have to move into a place where you are very, very, your sovereignty actually gets very small. It's a tiny little sphere, but it is a sphere. It's a perfect sphere. And like a child, you have to begin exploring, using explore mind and just be very curious about the fact that things are coming up and don't come to hmm. sense or meaning very quickly. You know, hold yourself in, in, in allowing the recognition of uncertainty for it might be actually a very long time because if the other person is actually profound and they're endeavoring to do something which is itself hard, then it's quite unlikely that you're going to get there quickly. Mm -hmm. It might take, mm -hmm. oh, I don't know, minutes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Certainly not seconds. It might take years. Um, and and what will end up happening, of course, is that there will be a new thing altogether, neither you nor him, that is being developed. And this is, in fact, a collaborative sovereignty, an actual collaborative sovereignty, a third being, a third thing that has its own way of presencing in the world that is being formed collaboratively between, among, and with you. You know, in much the same way that uh, two individual adults can produce a child that is a third thing. It's much more like that. By the way, hmm. if you want to run the parallel, this is also the right way to do parenting. Um, enter into a liminal space. If you enter into parenting from a position of thinking you know how to do it, um, even if you've done it before, hmm. you're doing yourself and your child a disservice. And yeah. Um, well, and, and, and it's so it's what came to Actually, my mind is, is it's, go ahead. you know, I, I tend to lump, uh, like meditative practices into the first domain of, of perception, but something in what you're saying reminds me of what it's like to be say on retreat and doing intensive practice where you enter into this state where you're almost like a child and you can't any longer make sense out of the world in the way that you used to. And it's in that space often that the biggest insights arise. Traditionally, that's how it's, 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 it's taught. Precisely. And I'm, I'm just advocating using that same approach in community, interpersonal. Yeah. That's just the, the, the kind of way it fractals like that is, is I'm just struck by how fast elegant that is. Um, for me, that speaks on behalf of, of, of the quality of the model. Mm -hmm. Well, that's nice. Thank you. I, 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 I hope that what you're saying is true. Um, yeah. we're, for me, at least right now, this conversation has entered into enough depth that I, I know that I can't actually uh, make sense of it very well. I'm kind of in, in flow. Uh, so when I say that, mm -hmm. what I'm saying is I, uh, this is actually, so this is a good, we're kind of, we're, we're actually doing it. So what I'd like to see uh, if I'm watching a Sam Harris, Jordan Peterson conversation, or frankly, any conversation between individuals of profundity and good faith is something like this. Um, you know, you, mm -hmm. you, just, you just said something about the fractal nature of and the, and the power of the model. And what, what I noticed in myself was uh, a sense of pleasure. 
It, it, that felt good. Mm-hmm. I felt positive about that. But also I noticed something else, which I've come to know as being the way that my intuition does something like math or logic, which is, mm. it's actually kind of an interesting notion. Like how and why is it? If I, if I ask you, if I, if, if I say like, you know, what is one plus one equal? Um, what, what is one plus one equal? Two. Yeah. Two. Um, there's something interesting about the fact that we can actually know that. And that, that, that knowing of that is actually a feeling. It's the same feeling that you have when you have a triangle-shaped space and you have a triangle, but they're out of alignment, and you twist the triangle until it matches the triangle-shaped space and all the lines line up. Mm. There's a feeling of alignment, a feeling that things are ordered properly. Um, yes. That is is kind of the essence of it. So I also felt that feeling. So I felt a source of pleasure, which is nice. Um, and I've noticed that the way that I've built my own habits, I, I generally don't feel surges of pleasure unless there is also a feeling of alignment, which is that mm-hmm. it felt to me like you said something that was both true and also conveyed that we were beginning to collaborate, that we were beginning to enter into a relationship of resonance. Um, that there was a communication that was happening where there, what I was saying to you or what I was trying to convey over this abysmal audio only channel, um, mm-hmm. was actually connecting you with you in, in a way that is, was deep enough that you were then actually coming back to me and signaling in ways that I could sense, ah, we're actually achieving resonance, which is to say, Ooh, can I do a little bit on that notion of resonance? I haven't done anything on this recently. And I think it's it's actually rather important. Please, please, this, yeah, go. Yes. So this is, I think, one of the best concepts because it's really quite clear. Um, I, don't, I don't know how old you are, but there used to be something called analog radio. And uh, you can do it in both the AM and the FM domain, but we'll use FM. And what was really interesting is that as a kid, I noticed that, let's say the radio station that I was trying to find was 99.3. And I'm manually turning the dial. And the dial is in single decimals. So I'm on 98.8, and I'm dialing up 98.9, 99.0. And what I notice is that it's just noise, just absolute static. 99.1, maybe at 99.1, I start to get a little tiny sense of something going on that's not static. At 99.2, yeah, I can hear. There's a channel, there's a channel here, but it's still really, really noisy. 99.3 it's crystal clear. Like it's almost all sound, almost all signal and almost no noise. Um, the fact that the universe is constructed that that exists is mm. astounding. Mm-hmm. It is astounding. It is the only reason why anything meaningful happens as far as I can tell. Um, and it's crucial because what w- the idea is that there's, there's a way for things to relate with each other. Uh, in this case, across a communications channel, but I think you can also get it across a relationship um, where the relationship or the, or the ratio of signal to noise radically shifts. Hmm. And, and so this is interesting because what that means is that if, you, if you're in an, in an environment, if you're in a situation, if you're in a domain where resonance is possible, in, in some domains it's not, right? You can't achieve resonance in, say, washing your clothes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you're in a domain where resonance is possible, then we have ourselves a very good rule of thumb always get to resonance first. Mm. 
Because if you're out of resonance, the signal-to-noise ratio is enormous, which is to say the, the, the cost or the effort to achieve even a little bit of communication is, is absurd. But if you're in mm-hmm. resonance, the signal-to-noise ratio is fantastic. Everything's in your favor. So always try to achieve resonance first. And once you've achieved resonance, yes. build, build skillfulness in maintaining it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's like a... Uh, like, I don't know, it's hard to explain, but I have this visual image of like a, a channel, like a vortex in the water that is able to be like a, a cyclone or a tornado, but we're, we're underwater. And as the vortex achieves resonance, what actually ends up happening is that it becomes hollow. There's just air inside. We're surrounded by water and we created a, a tube that connects, but it's, it's sinewy, like a, well, like a tornado, right? It's moving back and forth. And just like a tornado, if it kind of gets out of balance, the whole thing drops mm. and and so resonance, generating and achieving resonance is the first step in establishing coherence, which is itself the conditions for establishing collaborative sovereignty. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and I also, I also want to say that it strikes me that it's also the space in which that which we call grace arises. Oh, wow. That sounds fantastic. I... I, I know for sure I don't know what you mean, and yet I feel myself very attracted to learning more because it sounds quite quite right. Well, so what I am, um, I should say actually, it's yeah. interesting. Grace has come up many times in my life in the past couple of months, mm. and I am certain that I don't yet have it, I don't have grace with clarity. Yeah, and I'm just, you know, that's just, again, in, in this kind of liminal space uh, that we've created here, that's just what keeps coming back to me is that you know, when I look at my life and the times that I would kind of put in the category of when I've experienced grace, either in my own life or when working with another, or just in, in nature, it's, it's when coherence is, is high, right? It's when there's that state of coherence. It's when I, I forget what I'm doing because I'm so doing it in a sense. Mm. Um, that, okay. Yeah, okay. So, let me lob something back at you that just occurred yeah. to me. Um, we're getting, we're beginning to get, um, we're in, in deeper waters. <laughs> We've been in deep waters. We're now we're in deep, really deep waters. Um, it seems to me that there are actually two things going on simultaneously. Um, so one, uh, is it kind of in the, in the prosaic, in the, in the normal state of affairs that, that we kind of, can reach out and touch. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my friend Jamie Wheel would call this flow space, um, or with the, or being in the mm-hmm. zone, right? Uh, and that's that's and I think that's you know a sense of timelessness, a sense of spaciousness, a sense of peace, a sense that suddenly there's like a a fluidity to everything that hangs together. Yes. Now the other thing that occurred to me is that. When we say grace, what we might be pointing to is what happens is that when you are in this relationship with any other consciousness, you are also in a very important way in that relationship with consciousness in general. Mm. Yes. And that would be grace. Grace is the way that this shows up when you're sort of considering the relationship with consciousness in general and you know, in flow or in the zone is what it might be considered when you're thinking about it in the, in the specificity, in the context of the moment. Yes. Yes. 
yeah, that feels true or that feels really, I mean, that, <laughs> that resonates. Yeah. That resonates. Mm. Um, hmm. So this is a good conversation, but I have to tell you that I'm actually getting quite tired. Yeah. Great. Um, well, uh, I feel like that was a, I mean, that felt like I didn't know any other questions to ask after we went there. So, uh, that feels like a great time to, to stop. Um, uh, <laughs> well, I can say that if, if there is anybody who has followed all one hour and 14 minutes of this and continues to have appetite for more questions, um, I would be very interested in meeting them. This is, I think has been a, a pretty good conversation well, and a nice bite. Well, Jordan, I, I, I have to say, you know, I have interest in asking you more questions. So, you know, if, 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 if in the process, other people come forward and seem to be resonating with this kind of conversation, maybe, you know, we can use that as fuel for another one between ourselves. Cause it, this has been uh, very illuminating. I feel like I'm actually going to have to listen to this conversation again, because I know there are pieces that I couldn't comprehend, but I could feel the, the, the relevance. Um, and so I, I, I want to just appreciate you for, 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 I think, modeling what it's like to go into that liminal space, which I, 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 I experience as, as many people who go on podcasts, so to speak, are unwilling to go um, in conversation. And so I, I just want to like, notice that you're doing that and, and just appreciate your willingness to kind of venture into unknown territory together uh, in a public way like this. Hmm. No, deeply. Uh, thank you for, for noticing that. And uh, you're welcome. Hmm. Wonderful. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, Jordan. I, I, um, I, I'm very appreciative of the models that you've created and I'm, I'm actually using them in my own life in various ways. And I encourage those who are listening to the show to, to experiment with them, try them on, see what it affords you, see how it changes your relationship to yourself and to life, and to see if it's worth using and if it's use, if it's worth spreading to others. We are all walking infections, and we should infect each other with skillful tools. And I, I believe this is one of them. So um, mm. thank you very much, Jordan, for taking the time to be here. And I look forward to connecting with you in the future. Yeah, thank you, Daniel. And, and of course, if you would like to have a, another conversation, um, We'll do that.